Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to another episode here on Charting the Course. This week, we were incredibly honored to host Kerry Watkins here in studio for a conversation centered around the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. As the CEO and president, Carrie's impact on this city and this state runs deep and wide. She is a leader, a visionary, a servant, but most of all, she's just a wonderful human. A special thank you to Catherine Van Landingham for sitting in and helping guide the conversation today with me. And Carrie, thank you again for taking time away from your extremely busy schedule to join us. Now, as we approach this year's anniversary, I urge all of you to pause and reflect on these past 28 years. Maybe for you, that looks like driving down, parking the car, getting out and just walking the memorial grounds. Maybe if you haven't been into the museum yet, schedule a time to go and tour that. It is an incredible experience. But at the end of the day, and one thing Carrie talks about and I thought was just incredibly important and such a good reminder 28 years later, I pray that we never forget the true meaning of the Oklahoma standard. It was a day when time stood still. People helped their neighbor. People helped their coworkers. People helped strangers. That's the true meaning of the Oklahoma standard and something that I know is very, very important to carry and something I wanted to highlight. If you have not or want to learn more, go visit the website. I've put a link here in the show notes. But again, special thank you to Carrie for taking the time out of your day to sit down with me. And thanks to Catherine for joining me. So here's our conversation. I know you will enjoy it. Carrie, thank you so much for joining Catherine and I down here in the studio today. We are we are thrilled to have you. So thank you for taking the time. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh man, absolutely. So Carrie, I've I've known you and your family for for many years, dating very far back. Yeah. Um, but I would love if you wouldn't mind just to give us a little background on you, where you grew up, your background as far as your career background, your college background. Let's let's start there and then yeah, we'll, we'll sure. dive in. Yeah, sure. I'm one of three kids who grew up, I grew up in Cleveland, Oklahoma on the banks of the Arkansas River, same banks that the 1935 Heisman Trophy winner Billy Vessels ran up and down to become this strong giant that he became. <laughs> and a uh, great little town of about 3,500 people. My parents, uh, my dad's still there. My mom passed away in October, but my family home is still there and uh, love the values I learned in that that space and just having, you know, multitude of mothers and a uh, great youth group and just love Cleveland, Oklahoma. Went to OU where my parents both went and my grandparents all went. And uh, Catherine and I won't hold that. I, know, I, know. I, I held my tongue. Boomer. I um, of that. Oof, God, anyway, I journalism and history major and um, just love kind of just my experience there and the friends lifelong friends I've sure. made and now watching my own kids go through that cycle is yeah. kind of ma- amazing our daughter Caroline's at OU and our son Ford's at Davidson and uh, he plays a little football and he it's a small liberal arts college on the right side of Charlotte better known as the home of Steph Curry yep. and so uh, they are very good to that school and it's been great to kind of watch our kids do well in, in their respective schools. That's awesome. Yep. Joined the memorial in 19, early 1996, just after the committee was put in place. I was the first employee and I had no clue what I was getting into. I had gone to work with the local attorney on selling some a business transaction and he thought it was a good idea if I kept working at something. And his senior partner was a guy named Bob Johnson who had been selected by the governor and the mayor to chair the memorial okay. task force. 
And Bob called me, I think, before I even got home, or maybe as I got home. That's when you still had answering machines, not voicemail. <laughs> and uh, the World Wide Web was still pretty new, and nobody was carrying... Nobody had cell phones. Nobody had phones in their yeah. pockets. Yeah. And so uh, that that's really how I jumped into it. I met with Bob and then later Mayor Nork and really began to understand this was a process to help heal and rebuild lives in the community. And yeah. I would just say it was not on my radar to do. And I really think it was just a kind of divine intervention that it, that happened. And I can't explain how much I've learned and how many wonderful people I've met family members who have lost the most and survivors and first responders who just did amazing work. And it really has been something that you've just met really the, the arms and feet of the world. I mean, they're just the, the best of the human spirit have just yeah. poured through this. Yeah. And we're, and we're going to of course dive into some of these examples and stories that you've seen. I mean, we can only, we can barely scratch the surface today on our yeah. time, but we're going to, we're going to do our best. So this task force was formed and that's when you get the call to become yeah, I was, the communication, I, was, I was communications director uh, in 1996 okay. and remained that until 1998 and became the executive director. And then so that was however many years yeah. ago. You guys are the math people. But um, <laughs> anyway, it really was never intended to be a lifelong journey, but it has been a, a big part of my adult life. So turned into that. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to that day. We're in the month of the anniversary, so it's on everybody's mind. If you mm-hmm. if you grew up here or if you moved here last year, you you know about April nineteenth. Uh, so in nineteen ninety five, where were you on that day? Uh, I was literally walking out of uh, my condo. I watched my garden doors kind of go out and come back in. I assumed uh, it was a gas explosion, like most people. And I yeah. It was so impactful. I was about 50th and pin, so it was so impactful. I went back in, turned on the television. It was Regis and Kathy Lee, and within minutes, you saw the helicopter shot come on television. Channel 9 happened to be in the air. They spun their helicopter around. They got that shot. That is one of the first things you see in our museum, and it really was staggering. I, I had worked at Sonic, and we printed our corporate magazine at the, at the Journal Record Building, and so I knew that area pretty well, Okay, and I think I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, and... It was pretty quick. I think we knew it wasn't a gas explosion. I mean, people said pretty quick, this is more than... This is not. Right. Yeah. right. So April 19th happens. And so you mentioned the task force earlier. What, how long did it take to, until that task... Like, I mean, I know we just kind of had to process through and figure out what in the world happened. Had, you know, the, I'm sure the investigation started at this point into everything. And again, you learn all this in the, in the memorial. So... One plug real quick. If you have not gone, you have to go visit the, the, store. the museum and the, the memorial. But how did that transpire from that day, uh, turning on the TV, seeing the helicopter to being that first employee of like, now we have a mission? Yeah. Well, I think for for the most part, it was, um, we all went about our lives. I mean, even April 19th, you might have taken something somewhere, or donated something at your church or synagogue or Giving yeah. blood. Everybody did something. I mean, everybody I knew was doing something. Did something. They figured out some way to give back, which became known as the Oklahoma Standard. That was a term coined by the national media. And it wasn't us patting ourselves on the back. It was the national media getting here and going, wow, this is so different than anything really? we've ever seen. I don't think I knew that. And yeah. now it's so and now it wasn't even just Oklahoma City. I mean, it was all it was this, really the, really the entire Oklahoma. state came really together. Was. Yeah, because I was in Cashin, and I remember from that day, you yeah. know, it still shook my school, which is, you know, way out towards Kingfisher. Yeah. Of course, now we're also entering the, some of the generations who weren't during right. that time. So it is making sure they go through it to understand yeah. what this was. Absolutely. Well, yeah. and we are teaching a generation now of, of people who didn't, who sure. were not alive mm-hmm. or didn't live here. 
more than 50% of our population either weren't alive or didn't live here in 1995. And wow. so we have to continue to teach that story and teach the Oklahoma standard because Sam Presti, the GM of the Thunder, who's on our board, you know, he talks about as he brings in these new young players, they don't know what we're talking about when we say Oklahoma standard. I mean, like they mm-hmm. don't understand what that means. And they do when they start living around people and seeing people. But when they right. first walk in, it's like, what does that mean? And Unfortunately, because some people have politicized it and made it their own term, it gets confusing for people. So it really is about service, honor, kindness, and it really is about stepping up to serve, you know, honoring people and doing whatever it takes to show the kindness, which were the three things the national media saw in Oklahomans in 1995. Tom Brokaw ended his first couple of days of newscast talking about these cowboy tough, really, truly understanding the grit and the toughness and the courage of Oklahomans. And so I think when you look back at that, we can't forget how far we've come. The community has come a long way. And I I talked about this recently at at a talk I did, like, you guys are young enough. I'm not sure you remember the river without water. My kids do not know the river without water. Right. And so. I remember break time without. Oh, yeah. Without remember, the canal. Pre-thunder is what break I consider time it when as. It, when you told your dad and he said, you're not going to going break town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spaghetti warehouse is there, though. Yeah. You did <laughs> go on, on your prom dates. You went to spaghetti, spaghetti warehouse. Yeah. So, sorry. Yeah. No, no. And so, when we did the design competition in 1997, we did it in the Coma Warehouse building. Well, the, the canal had not been dug. The, the oh, seal yeah. was going up for the ballpark. And so, it really was about a city rebuilding. We had voted this MAPS tax ahead yep. of 95. If you look at the headlines, you know, April 19th or the days before, it was in some trouble. It was people were questioning it. They didn't understand why you had to, you could sell naming rights when the taxpayers were paying it. Things were over budget. It was hard. Yeah. And then April 19th happened. And all of a sudden, I think we realized as Oklahomans, we could do anything. There was nothing we could not do Mm -hmm. together. Yeah, we were one. The turnpike didn't matter. Oklahoma City Tulsa was the same. We just were all one big state that decided we were going to do this together. And so I think we don't want to forget those moments because every, and I say this all the time, every great state needs several great cities, several great colleges. I mean, we're better when we're all stronger. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Let's not fast forward a little bit, I, I would assume, but what was one of the first orders of business as the idea of, and probably the memorial was the first idea, not the museum, correct? I mean, Well, actually, it was a mission statement they put together, okay. the, and then they started that kind of in the fall of 95, uh, this task force began working on it, okay. and then I came in really toward the last part of that, and it was a remarkable process. They had community meetings in all these little towns around Oklahoma City, Guthrie, Midwest City, Norman, wherever there was libraries, they went to the libraries and held public meetings and heard from the public. At the same time, we were listening to the families, survivors, and first responders and okay. filling out the same survey, but keeping them separately. Okay. And ironically, people wanted the same thing. They wanted to have a place to remember and a place for the story to be told. How that came about, that wasn't part of the survey. It was just, what do you really want out of this? Because the mayor had begun receiving all of these designs for memorials. And so he was like, what are we going to do here? And so at the, at the time... You know, the building didn't come down until the end of May of 95. And so we had to figure out, the city had to figure out how to handle this and how to move forward. And so much credit goes to Mayor Norg and Governor Keating and President Clinton to an extent. I mean, he a lot of credit goes to him and kind of how we operate today. But in those early days, I give the mayor and the governor so much credit for not politicizing the, mm. the process. Our friends in New York didn't get that same benefit. Whether you liked them, voted for them, it doesn't matter. I'm, and I, I would say this to people all the time, like they are the power. I mean, they are the ones who are making decisions and it's best for us to work with them. And the mayor would sometimes come to family meeting on a Monday night and stand in the back of the room and just make sure the process is working. Never, ever tried to interfere. 
we signed an intergovernmental letter of agreement pretty early on in 96. It said really from the White House to the courthouse or to the city council that politicians would work to benefit whatever process we determined, but they would not interact in a way that made it political. And I think every now and then I want to pull out that book and send it to D.C. and have it sent out for another <laughs> Walk for another over the issue. head with that, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they did so well in our process. and um, Look what can happen. When everybody when actually comes it. together. Right. I, I mean, I've seen it work firsthand. Yeah, yeah. And I just think, you know, if we just figure out how to work on this together and come to the middle. One of the things we really work on is on the sacred ground, we work to find common ground. Okay. And that's something that's very important that even though we may be sitting around a table and we don't agree on a topic, we should be able to work it out and talk it out and say, OK, let's meet here. Let's compromise here. And that's something that we have really seen our country move away from. And I think something we desperately have to keep teaching because we can't keep going at this rate. You mentioned earlier the Bill Clinton visit or how helpful he was. And I, I do remember that as a child. I remember being at that. I guess it was the dedication yeah, where, the he, where right. he came and visited. Real quick, two cents on, on just his impact and just having a president be moved by an event in Oklahoma City. Right. Well, he didn't win a county in Oklahoma, and he's been here, I think, 16 times in the last 28 years. Cool. So I would say that's not political. I, I we, no. we are not political at the memorial. We try sure. hard not to be, even though sometimes things become political. We don't want to get in the middle of politics. But when you think you have a Democrat president who's in some, you know, not at the time, not the most popular president, and you had a Republican governor who was in the office, he was like on his 100th day or 101st day. I mean, he was very new. Ironically, or they had gone to law school together in, at Georgetown and knew each other. And so when Bill Clinton could pick up the phone and call the governor, Frank Keating, and say whatever you need, and they had a relationship and they had a trust, even though they didn't agree politically, they agreed to work together. Sure. And I think that set a tone that oh. did not change throughout our process. When we were going through the process of wanting to become a national park or a national memorial, we went to the Oval Office and President Clinton, and this was 1996 or seven, I, I can't remember, yeah. but yeah. we were in the Oval Office and the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, was like, this is when they balanced the budget and... Even though they didn't get along, they seemed to work together. It it, it really seemed so hard at the time. And yeah. I think, oh gosh, we'd love to have those days again. <laughs> but they said we're, the Park Service is $8 billion with a B dollars in backlog of maintenance. We can't keep adding parks. This is President Clinton, a Democrat wow. president, saying we can't keep adding national parks, which we all love because we can't take care of what we have. So is there a different method we can look at? Tom McDaniel was chairing our government committee and Senator Nichols and Ryan Leonard. All these guys were helping us. And we went back and began to look at what, Frank Lucas, what, what could we do to make this site that was a, an attack on a federal building that should, all things should be, a, you know, have national or federal help. Well, how can we do this? And we came back to D.C. a few months later and said, okay, we'll, we'll retain the ownership and we'll maintain it and we'll even build it. You guys just help us get the seed money to get started. Fund. And so they gave us $5 million to start it. The state matched it. The public doubled it. And we built the Memorial Museum and seeded an endowment. And then um, they've given us some money for an endowment to add to our endowment since. And it is, if ever a place the federal government and the people should be able to work together, it should be on the site. And so we're determined to make it work. The Park Service, it was a big step for them because they had never not owned or controlled a national memorial, and so that took some time, maybe twenty years or so, to to like work out work some, together again, to really yeah. figure out how to work it out. And it wasn't twenty years; that was exaggerated. But but, but I mean, it, it took some time, <laughs> yeah. and 
And we we have what I think is a great relationship. They interpret the outdoor site. The Memorial Foundation, which I work for, owns, operates, maintains, and the memorial and the museum. And so the Park Service is out there telling the story outside and working with us on school groups and other groups. And then we operate the museum, which is the funding mechanism for to pay for the entire site. Okay. Oh, so so there, cool. there's a little tidbit for you. So when you guys were sitting together as your, with the task force and, you know, you've created the mission statement and then you're starting to truly envision what you're creating, you know, to bring, continue to bring everybody together, to give them a place to come and remember. From that point till now, was has it exceeded your expectations or? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I mean, it's so far beyond anything I thought we could even accomplish. I didn't even know this process could happen. I mean. I say this a lot. I was raised by the daughter of a politician and newspaper publisher. So whatever my dad said went and we just kind of <laughs> fell in line. And um, so to work as a community and come together and sit across the table and work through stuff. And my dad actually was a great, uh, he was a great negotiator and worked really well. But I think one of the things he taught us is to just to have the confidence to, to know you're right and people will begin to fall in place. What I had to learn as an individual is that a lot of people would come to the table either emotionally drained because they had lost such a significant amount of their life. I mean, the daughter or husband or wife, and they're trying to maintain their life with other family members. A survivor had been through a lot of surgeries and trying to put their own life back together. Or rescue workers or first responders mm-hmm. who are taught and trained to go solve a problem. And they never intended to have that amount of deaths. I mean, they had trained and didn't know this would happen in their own hometown. So when you look at just that emotion, and then you look at the business owners who had invested their life savings to the pizza place, the cleaners, the sign shops, all the way around the site, some of them immigrants who'd come to this country. I mean, you had a lot of people to to process and deal with, and they all brought their own issues to the table. And that's not being critical. That is being very real. And so we saw a lot of raw emotion, and you learn to be a listener. You learn that, um, I was telling the story yesterday, some folks, when you we were in city council trying to close fifth street, which is today where the reflecting pool stands and oh, yeah. the gate on each end. And the city council, the, the traffic commission, they all were processing this. Could we do it? If so, it's impact. Cause it's a entrance to two thirty five. Like how do yeah. we do this? And Bob Johnson made this incredible appeal to the city council on why this should happen. And this upstands a young man who lived in Regency towers across the street. And I don't know how old he was, 18, 20. I don't know how young. And he makes an equally powerful speech of why we should open not to let the terrorists win. I mean, a lot of things. And I remember sitting there and those were church pews at the time and, and just in gold shag carpet of my dad, but just kind of holding on thinking, Oh my gosh. And I, and I was 28, almost 29 and thinking, we have very different opinions, and his is every bit as important to him as mine is to, yeah. to me. And we have to figure out how to get to the middle of the road. And so every anniversary when I see him in the audience, I just smile thinking, he mm. taught me so much. He taught me things that two college degrees, my parents, nothing. I mean, like I never really knew that until we sat in that city council well, chamber. Like you said, that helped pave the path for you navigating all everything, the other right. discussions and everything else going forward of learning how to bring people together and unite over what you're trying to do and what the mission is and move forward. We, we have what we call a conscience committee, which is family survivors and first responders. It's about 30, 35 people. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. Really cool. and, it, and so I meet with them four or five times a year or during COVID we talked once a week. We depend on those folks to push back when they don't feel like if we're, if we're pushing too far or, um, or they'll come to us with ideas or they'll say, that's a great idea. Let's do it even more. Or you don't have to do that. Let's do this. I mean, they're they're so good to just be honest and to sit around the table and say, I love that you're doing this, but 
you don't need to, or we don't want to relive that today. So let's go this different direction. I just, I love the candor of this committee. It's, it's an idea we got from the Holocaust Museum in DC. When we were building the museum, I went up to visit with the folks there and Bill Parsons, who was their deputy director, who became a very good friend of mine, who died just a couple of years ago, but he was such a great advocate in the Jewish community, the survivors of the Holocaust. And he was like, they got to, you got to know, they have to know they can trust you. And even if they don't agree with you, they've got to know they can trust that you're going to be honest with them. And I certainly understood that. But um, I will say of my 27 years working with those folks and walking the journey with them has been absolutely the, the best part of this. Because even when you see the worst, you know, they're trying for the best. They're doing the very best they can do. When you're moving forward or taking the museum forward, their daughter's still living at home. Or she's not having grain. I mean, their their loss is still their loss. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not a one year process. That's you know, exactly it's not a right. one year. It's not over. Like now, you've gone through all the anniversaries. It's my daughter would have been eighteen. My daughter, mm-hmm. my son would have been twenty five. Right. Not uh, going to walk him down it, the aisle. Yeah. yeah. And, right. and you don't you don't think about that. Right. And it is a the grieving process is is not a finite. It's so different for everyone. Well, and to and, be with them through that healing process over time, I mean. What a connection to yeah, continue I mean, to help them. There was a lady named Janine Gist who, um, ironically, my, my husband had gone to Carl High School in Midwest City with her daughter, and um, her daughter died in the bombing. And Hardy knew that, and we knew that, but we got to work really closely with Janine. She she struggled with the word hope in the mission statement. And the night we were trying to finalize the mission statement, we were at St. Luke's, round tables. I'll never forget this. And I'd been at work maybe 30 days, I mean, like actually on the job. And um, she stands up and Philip Thompson, who'd lost his mom in the bombing, said, well, I think we really should add the word hope in this mission statement. And she's like, hope? I don't have hope. I lost my daughter. She was like in her early 20s. And she's like, I have no hope. And um, she was tough, but really strong. And so this debate, this discussion went on for a little bit. And before it wrapped up, she said, okay, okay. I don't I don't agree with it, but let's add the word. I'm, I, I'm not going to keep you from adding it. And so the committee, this committee had been working on it for almost a year, the mission statement, it made some memorial up for comfort, strength, peace, hope, and serenity. That really was a four-letter word to her, but she agreed to let it go. And that was March of 1996, I think March 16th to be exact. And um, fast forward to April of 2000, we were waiting for President Clinton's motorcade to arrive, and the White House advance team had said, select a family member and survivor and fire chief and police chief or whatever, and you guys give the president the tour. And so I selected Janine because she was really one of the few Democrats I really knew at the time, and um, <laughs> and I knew she loved Bill Clinton, but she had given so much of herself, and she yeah. had compromised on a night she didn't want to compromise. And she'd also begin to help us with the museum and artifacts and what was right and what was wrong, and so... Anyway, we, we stood there for the motorcade to arrive under the 903 gate. I'll never forget. It was a life-changing moment for me. And uh, those gates were bright and bronze. The same day yeah. you were talking about being yeah. there, Tyler. And she grabbed my hand. It was like my own mom grabbed my hand. And she said, I can't imagine this place without hope. Wow. And, I mean, tears came in my face. I'm thinking, this is a mom that lost her world. Lost everything. Yeah, lost everything. It. And I'd go on to get to know all. She had five daughters. I would got to know the wow. other four really well. And. Got to be a part of her 50th anniversary. I mean, I, I lived life with these people. Came home from vacation early to bury her. And truly, was a, that lady was a life changer for me. I mean, like she taught me so much about motherhood and being a wife and giving back to her kids when you don't think you have any energy to give. I mean, she taught me a lot more than just about memorial process. Yeah. Right. And um, 
my life has been enriched by a lot of people like that. That's so cool. I mean, I wish we could just sit here and hear more of those yeah. stories, Carrie. So let's let's shift a little bit to the the actual memorial in the museum today. So it has been years in the making. You guys have continued to add and in, I can't even say improve. Enhanced. You, what enhanced. We call it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. That's, that's better. So again, I've, I've had the chance to go through here. Uh, Brittany and I went and took time just where we could take two hours and, and go through it because it really takes at least that to truly let it sink in. What items or artifacts or pieces that are inside that museum are maybe the most, were the most difficult or most impactful or have the coolest story? I know one that I'm thinking of, but I'll let you um, well, we opened us. the museum in February of 2001. The, the memorial opened in April 2000, and then nine months later, we opened the museum. Now, 2001, iPhones were not in there, still not in everybody's pocket. So I want to I want to say that because it was a different museum. The storyline has not changed, right. but how we deliver it has changed, and the types of media we use to deliver it has changed. But the storyline is the same storyline we opened with. We've just enhanced it by technology or interactivity or whatever. It's a it's a tough story. It's it's not going to the art museum. It's not going to the zoo. I mean, it's a very tough story. So you have to mentally get your head around it before you walk in there. If you've gone to Holocaust Museum or nine eleven, I mean, it's the same. But this is before nine eleven museum. I mean, so we opened this six yeah. months before nine eleven even happened. Yeah. And I think about that. I'm mean, just thinking about the fact that we push and push to get the museum opened, and because it was the funding mechanism to pay for everything, and how important that turned out to be when nine eleven hit, and. The artifacts also changed because when we opened the museum, the federal trials were about to get underway. So right. all the evidentiary material, we had none of that at first. And we had what we showed in the justice area, which was really just a small wall with some courtroom drawings okay. that the artist had given us. And that's really all we could have. I mean, it was kind of a timeline, all we could do. And then those artifacts went to the state trial because, believe it or not, and today this stands true even 28 years later, domestic terrorism is not a federal crime. And so, uh, I mean, there are other ways you can get around that. But the word, I mean, to, to commit an act of domestic terrorism, Justice Department could not hold the perpetrators accountable for all 100, 168 lives because it became a state statute. Wow. But, the, but the federal law enforcement officers, and there were eight, could be they could try the cases in federal court because of that. And so there was a trial for Timothy McVeigh and one for Terry Nichols. And then uh, with the courage of West Lane and saying we, the other 160 deserve their time in court. As the DA, he brought wow. Terry Nichols back here. Timothy McVeigh got life and was put to death in June of 2001, actually after we opened the museum. And so there have been changes throughout because things kept happening. But after all the trials were over, then all... All the evidentiary materials came to our archives, and yeah. they were really incredible pieces of the truck. I mean, lo lots of pieces that helped you tell the story in a yeah. much better way than we could. Yeah. More visual. One of those was the car that yep. Bay was driving, and um, that was— And that took some time. That took some— We had that car in storage for probably a decade, but it took some time for people to get their arms around it. And I wouldn't say everybody still has their arms around it. And we don't want that to ever, like, glamorize McVeigh. But what we wanted to show is that it was an everyday car that he drove. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. more importantly, it was the heroic, great work of Trooper Hanger that noticed mm -hmm. he yes. didn't have a tag on. And then he stopped him. Again, today it would be different because in 1995 it was illegal to carry a gun and a knife without a license. And so he could take him to jail for that. So he had, you know, like, I think eight tickets written for him. No, the driver's license was maybe expired, no tag, all these different things. McVeigh had a pair of earplugs in his pocket, which are on display in the museum. For me, that, that it's a gut-wrenching moment because you know he put those in no. as he ignited the bomb. And so I just want to just, that yeah. makes me like yeah. 
little angry. Yeah. Um, but when you look at the personal artifacts, like the Gallery of Honor, which we have 168 boxes, we did that. It was a, an idea that came to us from our museum designers, and we thought it was brilliant. And I think back about how naive I was. I, you know, when I was not 30 yet or right at 30, didn't have any kids. I mean, life was life. And, of course, you could give up an artifact of your loved one having no clue how hard that would be to ask the families to give up something that would be preserved forever, mm-hmm. but, but it not. still might be one of the few things they had left of yeah. their loved ones. So there were ways to get around that, but the, those 168 individual boxes were are, I think, to me, some of the most powerful objects. There's lots of symbols of faith. There's college rivalries in there. There's, I mean, one of the things is a girl's credit card because she was the first girl in her family to, first person in her family to get credit, and they were so proud of that. My favorite in there is a handwritten recipe from a mom to, to her daughter because my mom's done that for me a million times. And so that, for me, that was like, uh, I have the, I have those things. My mom, you know, yeah. And for that girl to be willing to give up her mom's handwriting to be in the museum, Helps you connect to those victims. Right. You didn't have to know any of them, but you could still connect to the personal part of them. Man. So as you reflect, and again, I I wish we could make this a two-hour conversation, (laughs) but um, I wanted to leave some time here because as you reflect on the past 25 years or so, and then as you look ahead, and and you just talked about how you you were in your late 20s, early 30s during a big portion of this, that what we just talked about, Mm -hmm. that that early phase and now where you are and then the impact of we've already talked about the Oklahoma standard the community resilience and community as a state really that you've talked about you've mentioned uh Sam Preston with the thunder I mean what what do you see are you in are you surprised are you impressed that after 25 years that this has remained intact and that this energy to continue to tell the story lives on uh, I mean I, I, I couldn't say it surprises you but are you are you encouraged by that yeah I'm not surprised I am encouraged and I'm also discouraged in, in a way and let me tell you why okay. I think we're we're at the 28 year mark okay I think the political rhetoric and the social media has you know enlarged that in some ways but just as you look at past and former people who are extreme left or right to use the, the social media networks to to engage their troops is we didn't have that in 1995. We didn't have it in 2000 or 2001 when we opened. We have it in 2023. And so as we approach the 30th anniversary of Waco, which is kind of the predecessor oh, right. event to that's this, right. to this, you look at the former president going to Waco for a political rally that, that doesn't seem coincidental to me, but maybe it is. You, you just begin to understand we are, the fight is, is no, not any less and maybe it's worse. Uh, I mean, maybe we have, more to teach. And yeah. uh, I was in the museum last Saturday with Cinder Casty from Louisiana, a great moderate United States Senator, just an incredible man, and his two daughters, 23 and 21. And they didn't really know the story. They're from Louisiana and didn't really know this story well. And we spent, I think, almost three, two and a half hours in the museum. The museum was packed. It was just one of those things you watch people begin to try to understand the story. And I'd really do say this people don't know it. I mean, like, we know it because we were alive, and, or you know it because you're from Oklahoma, and maybe you're taught it in history. But but we have to show the world that there there are better ways yeah. than you know uh, senselessness of violence. And how do we come together and resolve this? We we have a program called Better Conversations, which is just what we've talked about: is coming together around the table, working through things. I wish we had had that in place in schools and everywhere when McVeigh was in the army, and when he didn't like how the army treated him. They could walk him through it or he could be a part of that. I mean, I think we all have a responsibility, whether it be to teach a senselessness of violence, to watch what we say, to watch the rhetoric we say, 
even not even meaning some of the things, we can stir it up. And I think, so I'm encouraged that people still want to learn this story. I'm discouraged that the the hype and the rhetoric is so strong now. And that, that really isn't political either. It, it's just uh, people have gone really to their yeah. corners and yeah. they, they, they need to come back to the middle and say, we're never going to agree. You're, you believe this and I believe that, but I'm going to respect your decision and I'm going to walk away. And try teaching that to a couple of kids or yeah. young mm-hmm. adults and, and reminding them that, you know, the war games they're playing on their video games, it's virtual. And this is a very real story. Yeah. And it, there was no make-believe in this story. Oh, there's 168 real reasons why Exactly, it, it's serious. So I think that's that's the part. And that, that is where the marathon comes in, too, is yeah. that it's... It gives you another way to teach the story yeah. through celebration of life and in a way to teach the younger generation and to understand why we run the race. It's not just another race. And so that also helps us. Yeah, and it's one reason why the race has become one of the top attractions from a marathon standpoint across the country. Catherine, you're currently training for it. so I am. Any, the half. Next year, we're going to have a full cell capital relay team. Let's it's, do it. It's official. Amen. We just recorded it right now. Amen. Amen. You can still get it in. You got yeah. a couple of weeks you can get it in this year. When did, wh- real quick, when was the first race? 2001. 2001 was the first race. Mm-hmm. When I mean, did it become Boston Qualified? I think it started Boston Qualifier. Um, great story, Tyler. You don't even know this, but your mom, I was taking your mom and dad around the memorial right before we opened it. And uh, Hardy and I were just having a moment with your parents on yeah. the site. And, um, which remains one of my greatest moments of just kind of reflecting on what we'd done and how supportive they had been. And your mom said there's a couple of guys in the church that uh, want to start this. And Kim's yeah. a runner, and so she, they, I guess, ran it by her. And so we met with them that next week, and that really was the beginning of, the, I mean, we agreed to it. I think that was April of 2000, and by April 2001, we, we had a race. Where were you at with participants from, like, the first year to now? I mean, it's grown significantly. Just. Oh, gosh, I think there were 3,500 the first year, and I, I hope we'll get 17,000, maybe 20,000 this year. We'll see. That's fantastic. And, and I will say, if you're not a runner, but you want to wake up and you want to feel and see just one of the coolest experiences ever, just find a spot when this thing kicks off. Uh, what is it, Gorilla Hill? Gorilla Hill, I mean, just yeah. fun. It's it is unbelievable. There's a lot of great. I actually took last year to be one of the spectators on the side and just cheer. And I yelled for all my friends you know, that were going through and completely different experience from in the past when I've usually run the race. And it was such a fun time. I mean, you just we were around fiftieth, so it was after the Gorilla Hill, so they've survived right. that part. <laughs> You're getting ready to turn, and then you know make, make your way turn. back. Yeah. And, Mentally, you're bracing yourself for that at that point and, you know, just being able to give everybody high fives. And I mean, the amount of people, though, that do show up to cheer and as a runner, and I also work with the Red Bud, so you see some of how right. what it takes to put a race on. There's so much that goes into that and number of moving parts, not just the runners, but the street yeah. closures and everything else that you guys are having to navigate. It's a fantastic race and run so well. Uh, yeah. Put good pun there. Yeah. Did you like that? You oh, always yeah. get one in. You always <laughs> get one I'm in. I'm nailing it. But I've always loved it. And you guys changed the course. And now we get to yeah. end down at Scissor Tail Park. Right. I'm very excited about that. I think that's great. We just outgrew Broadway. And, and some of the lots we had used buildings began yeah. to rise up. Because I mean, which, you're all funneling in and then everybody's ending at the same time. So it makes yeah. perfect sense. We to use the, greenery, the green space of the park. And then we wanted to also go to Northeast Oklahoma City, which so we go in through yeah. Lincoln Terrace and cut back through. It's not as much as we'd love, but we're trying to get all the runners through Gorilla Hill, which is like the... Yeah. One of the favorite spots. That's such and a so good that spot. kind of yeah, it does. How the neighborhoods 
the Asian district and how they have the, the dragons. And mm-hmm. I mean, just all the, the really fun celebratory things along the course. It just, it really is Oklahoma and Oklahoma City at its finest. And, you know, it is at its peak on that day. It's one of the greatest days, I think, in Oklahoma City because so many people come out, roads are closed, people don't gripe. I mean, a few do, but most do not gripe. <laughs> And they make the best in their neighborhood, and then they and they come. And there's to the something for line. everybody. It really whether is. They need volunteers. So whether you're volunteering or you're out there cheering, your kids are doing the one mile run. You have the 5K. There's a relay option. Oh yeah. The half and the full. I and mean, and this year we had the senior race, which yes. is patterned after the fi- after the kids. And Didn't, so, uh, Mark Bravo say he's going to be running that this year? That's what he says. I we'll see. It. And so I think we'll have a thousand seniors doing that on Saturday. So cool. That's fantastic. And those are mostly folks who have lived here. Yeah. I mean, I've heard from some people say we have never figured out how to, we lived it. It was so hard. We have never figured out how to give back. This is the perfect answer. So we're excited to see uh, really just the celebration of life. And to, you can run in honor of someone that was killed, run in honor of one of your friends or in memory of someone. It's, it really is about making it your, your race for you. Carrie, thank you. Uh, so much. It's just been an honor to have you. Is there anything we left out, anything you'd like to add? No, I mean, I think really the Memorial Museum really is just, it's, it's about telling the stories and it's about yeah. um, making people reflect on their own lives and, and making sure that as we all go through life, we can figure out where we can make it better. And that's, you know, that's the feeling we want you to leave with is a little bit of hope is that even to the worst of times, we can come out and find the very best. Yeah, it's that word. Like you said, we spend a lot of time on it, but it's hope. Yeah, it is it's hope. hope. And uh, we, that's, if we can focus on that, it will be a better place Absolutely. instead of what we want to focus on. You have anything else, Catherine? I've honestly just sat here just soaking in everything you've said. And like you said, I wish this could be two hours um, we'll from no, living no, from no, that day. And, listen to we'll, just, we'll just do it again. So. Uh, thank th- you guys so much. Oh, yeah. uh, thank you. Thank you for your partnership and just making sure people get to the museum. It means a lot to us. Yeah. Oh, we 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 love it. So, Carrie, thank you, Catherine. Thank you for sitting in, and uh, we will uh, we'll do this again. Great, thank thanks. Y'all. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.